Well, hello everybody. This is Manny Escamilla, the Full Metal Archivist, uh, coming in with another interview. Um, we were initially going to do this interview with Jonathan uh, right before the election. Well, not right before, about 23 days before the election is uh, when we recorded the interview. Um, we had some technical difficulty when it came to locating the song uh, that he had requested. And we unfortunately were not able to do that. Uh, then it had some other uploading issues. Um, and then the election happened. So by that point, uh, we figured we'd give it a little bit of time. Um, and uh, today I'm able to say that, you know, Jonathan uh, Ryan Hernandez looks to be the um, council member elect for the ward uh, five race, so he managed to, to pull it off, and uh, you know, so a lot of the conversation that you're hearing here is actually you know took place prior to the election, um, but I thought it was still a really good conversation in the sense of you know kind of going over some of the trauma that happens when you grow up in a community like Artesia Pilar or in a neighborhood like Artesia Pilar, and you know some of the steps that it takes to sort of overcome that and to still be involved in one's community. So I think the overall lessons are are pretty good, um, applicable lessons. And um, you know, for those of you that uh, listen to the the podcast, uh, thank you the twenty of you that seem to do so on a regular basis. I appreciate you, each and every one of you. Um, the um, outro is going to have a little <laughs> overdub so thank you edgar for doing that wonderful overdub in order to make sure that we know uh, which band that we're listening to uh, toscos uh, out of santa Ana, and uh, appreciate them for uh, letting us use their song today and uh, with that we're going to go into the interview with jonathan Today, uh, we have a very special guest uh, star of the show uh, for another interview, um, Mr. Jonathan Hernandez, uh, running for Ward 5 in the upcoming Santa Ana City Council race. Uh, if you could please introduce yourself. Yeah, well, thank you, Manny, for, for having me. It's an honor. Um, my name is Jonathan Ryan Hernandez, and I um, was born and raised in the Artesia Pilar neighborhood. I am a fifth-generation Santa Ana resident to the city. And I'm running for Santa Ana City Council in Ward 5 to, to represent uh, the people. Uh, growing up in this community, there wasn't a whole lot of, uh, of positive narratives that, that, that we have heard about a lot coming from Ward 5. And um, I'm running for office to, to show the people that we are not defined by the adversities of this neighborhood and that if change is going to come, it's going to come from the bottom, not from the top. So. We have a people-powered campaign, and we've been working hard uh, for many, many years to bring solutions to the people of Ward 5. All right. Very cool. So I guess, you know, you, you, you got into a little bit of the, the intro and the, as to the why. Um, so I don't know if you could just tell, like, people a little bit about, like, your, your background and kind of your experiences growing up, like, in, in Artesia Pilar, like, specifically. Yeah. Um, well, I am a, just turned 28 years of age um, in August. And I was born in the summer of 1992. And I share that with you because during that time, Santa Ana was at an all-time high when it came to gang violence, when it came to um, adversities in, in the particular neighborhood that I'm from. And unfortunately, like most kids in my, in my community, I grew up without my father. And I was raised by a single mother and my grandparents. And every single man in my family 
on my dad's side were members of, of gangs. And I didn't have a whole lot of positive male role models in my life for that very reason. And um, when I was a kid, I knew then that we needed change desperately. And I know now that we still need that change. And I decided to run for office. But my, my pathway into community work started at a very young age. I was about 14 years old when I organized my first political action. I used to organize different concerts um, around the, the message of, of combating the, the war in Iraq and the, the Bush administration. And in addition to that, um, did that at a local space here in Santana. And as I got older, my activism and my organizing developed and I got deeply into environmental organizing around uh, 2010. Um, started working for the Orange County Labor Federation um, between 2011-2012, um, found myself working for for a union for a number of years, where I where I had the honor of working with thousands of union members all across Orange County. And at the age of 23, I started a, a community organization that would utilize sports and education and activism and music as a social change model to disrupt um, the issue of mass incarceration and. Uh, and that's been my mission ever since. And I, I just hope that I could leave this community better than, than it ever was when I was a kid. Cool. Thanks for that. And, you know, I guess, you know, part of the, the overall question is like, when did you know that you were running? And I, and I say this specifically because I think we had a very funny uh, story where I think the first time I met you or talked to you it was a very specific question and ask. Um, so I'm wondering, like, when the, you know, when the actual uh, decision clicked. That's awesome. I remember that conversation. I remember you, you asked me, like, are you running one day? And I was like, I don't know. I think I might for sure. But if I do, it'll be 2020. Um, it's so crazy. I I remember my first time seeing an elected that resonated with me. It, it was around like 2012. I met um, I met a lot of people in the community that I felt represented the story of people that come from familiar backgrounds like mine. I remember meeting Roman Reina and I remember hearing his story. I remember learning about his brother. I remember learning about the experiences he had as a child. And I remember thinking, you're not supposed to talk about that stuff. That's not stuff people are proud of, but it's why I was always such a quiet little boy is because I felt like if people knew the things that I experienced and saw as a little kid, they would think less of me. And when you feel that way subconsciously, you begin to treat yourself that way. And it wasn't until I saw people be um, open about their adversities and the things that they had to go through that I found pride in those experiences that I had. Um, having become a father at the age of 17, I, I had to grow not only as an individual and as a young adult and as a father, but I did that simultaneously while raising a child. And we both navigated the world as we learned. And I believe I was probably about 24 um, when I came to the realization that I had aspirations to run for office. And it was in 2016 when the Santa Ana Police Officers Association spent upwards of $200,000 against Vincent Sarmiento um, Roman Reina and a couple of other candidates. And, um, and I started to see, okay, this is how money is being used in a citywide election. And I remember I was deeply into political data. And I remember when that election happened, 
Ward 5, at that time, the candidate that we had won Ward 5, like unanimously won that ward. But because it was a citywide election, that candidate won the election because he had, he had an abundance of money that paid for everything, but he lost the ward he was chosen to, to represent. And at that point, I said, okay, we're going against big money. We're going against political uh, political interests. And I remember telling myself, if we ever get district elections, this is my backyard. You're not going to outwork me in my own house. I know this place like the back of my hand. I grew up in, in this community. I played in this community. I went to Fremont, Spurgeon, and Santa Ana High School. I know every alleyway. I know every street, every apartment complex. This is my backyard. And I remember when we had district elections in 2018, I told my family, I was like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to run for office and I'm going to be a voice for people that have been left out of politics. The people that have been justice impacted, the multi-generational Chicano families that have been hyper-policed through gang injunctions, families like mine, migrant families that have been kept out of the, out of politics and out of these conversations. And I'm running so that these individuals can have a voice. And so that one day, a young kid that is going through the struggle right now can look at me and say, I can be that much better than this guy. And I hope to provide the path, a pathway, platforms, and programs so that people can do that. And, and that's that's the goal. All right. Well, good to hear. Um, you know, it's... Uh, yeah, it... Ward five and central central uh, Santa Ana is definitely um, I'd say probably one of the the tougher neighborhoods, right? And it's like um, as far as uh, the the data, I think the um, environmental screen. Uh, so the Cal environmental screen, which basically kind of shows like the levels of um, impact from environmental pollution, very have, you know very heavily uh, impact uh, that neighborhood. Um, and like you were saying on on over policing. So you know, what are the actual you know, things you'd like to do, right? Since you're not there as a policymaker currently, it's a little bit easier probably to draw a comparison to the current incumbent, but like, what is it that you're actually proposing that's any different uh, than the current person and then versus any of the other folks that are running currently? Yeah, um, well, for one, I wanna say thank you for asking such impactful questions because it's always reinvigorating to meet community members that take the time to ask these questions that are gonna allow us to have the, the biggest impact in our community. And policy is where that's at. I mean, whether you are a, a terrible candidate that is getting massively funded from special interests, at the end of the day, that individual is gonna be voting on public policy that can affect our lives adversely. So I'm gonna share uh, in the platform that we have and our platform that centers people. And I'm going to just start by, by telling you why our platform is unique and special. Having grown up in this community and having experienced a lot of these injustices firsthand, I have a very expert lived experience and I know how my neighbors feel. And it's, it's very uncommon when you have a candidate, let alone an elected official, who understands the people at that level. Not only that, without having this position without having this power, I have always fought to bring solutions to people from all over the city of Santa Ana. So I have a data-driven approach 
and a trauma-informed approach to public policy here in Ward 5. Number one, because Santa Ana is the youngest city in Orange County with 31% of our residents being under the age of 18, I am going to be responsive to the needs of my neighbors. As a parent that has a daughter um, that is in fourth grade, I am going to create a citywide free Wi-Fi program so that each household has proper access to education. I believe that the role of a city should be to remove barriers to learning. You and I grew up in the days where Santa Ana took pride in its education first model, and those days have changed. So I want to bring that spirit. I want to bring that, that uh, philosophy back because I believe that that is how we create public safety. We have to plan for it. Number two, I know that education is a social determinant um, over a person's lifetime. I know that ultimately, however much money we divest from education will impact how secure our future is. So I'm looking to introduce an early childhood education program um, that will work not only as a satellite program that we can utilize remotely, but uh, hopefully once things open up, something that we can provide in person at no cost to families at each of our major community centers. And early childhood education would not only be something that we integrate into parks, we could integrate it into our bus stops, we could integrate STEM into our community centers and expose children to science, technology, music, math, art. So that by the time they're kindergarten, they get to kindergarten, they have so much positive experience in education that they are ready and we've prepared them to be successful in school. Um, so my candidacy in my platform isn't just about staying in this position for four years. I'm looking to impact this community 12 years moving forward because the decisions that we make today affect an entire generation of students. So with that being said, I'm also going to have a proactive and trauma-informed approach to keeping this community safe. I'm going to introduce more music, more art, more um, community engagement programs, more community murals, and re-entry services at our parks and recreational centers so that we can be preventative when it comes to the issue of crime. I know that nobody is born a gang member, the same way that nobody is born a teacher. These are things that you have to plan for. And I'm looking to create the infrastructure to create self-sustaining communities where we can have a pathway to college, a pathway to excellence, rather than having a pathway to prison. Um, I can share firsthand that I got into orchestra when I was in middle school at Spurgeon Intermediate. And a lot of people would look at me and wouldn't see me maybe as somebody that is a music aficionado that loves Bach and Mozart and appreciates Vivaldi. But I grew up playing in orchestra, uh, the double bass. And for me, it helped rewrite my narrative. I found boxing when I was a young kid. I found Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And so contrary to what people say about living in a community like this, where it's violent, all of these different avenues taught me to do things differently. And, and that was one of the most effective things that my, my family could do, was be proactive in my development. Um, and then lastly, I'm looking to um, advocate um, to have public transparency when it comes to public safety. I understand firsthand because I work today as a community health worker for a mental health program for the county. 
I have youth as young as five years old that I work one-on-one with, and I have youth as old as 18. And each of these children have been exposed to the foster system. But before then, I worked in the field of gang prevention and reentry for for a county program as well. I also did that in the city of Watts. So I have an ex I have an expertise in in working with adverse communities that have, have experienced trauma. I have a mental health background, and I will have a data driven approach to keeping this community safe. I know that public safety can't be singular to policing. I know that if we are going to have public safety, we have to be inclusive, Manny of all the different facets that make up safe and vibrant communities. Mm -hmm. That means our parks have to be well-maintained, well-lit. Our streets have to be well-paved. We have to have quality jobs. We have to have good development, affordable housing. We need to make sure that we have good rent control. We need to make sure that we're having better funded libraries, that we're creating more libraries. And when we have public safety that is inclusive of all those things, then we will see a community where people can thrive. And so another layer to how we make sure people are at the table is I'm looking to introduce a police oversight commission. And this police oversight commission, I, I would advocate for it to have the ability to subpoena and as well as to investigate. And to add another layer, layer of transparency, I understand that voter disenfranch- um, disenfranchise is real. I know that a lot of people have had their voice stripped away from them. So I would advocate the same way that we've advocated for um, commissions to be inclusive of folks, regardless of their documentation and their documented status. I would want to advocate so that folks that have been justice impacted can sit on those commissions too. Because if we are trying to accomplish public safety and police accountability, we should include the people that have dealt with those issues firsthand. All right. Well, well th- thanks for the rundown of the, the platform. I see you've been uh, doing the pitch uh, in the neighborhood and uh, getting it down to, to, to science there. Um, you know, I, I really appreciate this because it, it is a lot of proactive stuff and, you know, I, you know kind of seeing the, the vision there. The, the, the question that I think immediately comes to my mind is you're going to be proposing all of this stuff in face of what's likely to be one of the worst budgetary years and budgetary cycles that we're going to see in our lifetimes, right? Like this immediate um, upcoming budget is going to be a tough one. So I don't know like how you kind of already envision that or you know, what the thought is on balancing out the goals versus what those kind of reality, the restrictions are going to be in reality once it comes to assigning funds for, for these programs. Yeah, uh, that's a great question. Um, so I, there's two parts to that answer. Number one is we have to have a data-driven approach to how we're utilizing public monies. If we look at the data of how much money our police department has, it, and you look at how unsafe our community is today, well, as somebody that works in this field where I work with children and people that have experienced the justice system firsthand, I know where their discomfort lies. And I know that that is a system that that should not be singular to keeping this community safe. We are sending, essentially our, our community is on fire and we're expecting police to put out these fires. And, and that, that, is not, that is not a data-driven solution at all. And so what I would like to do 
is I'd like to look at how the, these monies are being spent. And I would like to examine everything from their youth programs to how much the officers that are working these programs are being paid to how much it costs per child that is being served um, down to how effective are the programs and the initiatives that our tax dollars are going to and whatever is not working, well, we will invest it in programs that will provide effective solutions. So number one is we have to have a data-driven approach to keeping this community safe. And data will show you that when children are invested in and we have infrastructure to support education and families can live in their community without the fear of displacement, in turn, you have safer communities. Number two is we have spent a lot of taxpayer dollars millions of dollars having a department that specifically focuses on shutting down illegal dispensaries. So what that shows me is that we are utilizing tax dollars and they are revolving because that industry, if we do not regulate it, it is going to continue to move and we're going to continue to spend tax dollars to shut down these illegal dispensaries. So I would choose to regulate that industry. I would choose to have legal dispensaries operate. And the good news is there's a tax revenue, 3% of which goes specifically to youth programs, 3% which is allocated to the city of Santa Ana and 3% which is allocated to public safety. I would look to generate more tax revenue by allowing legal dispensaries to operate so that we can generate money so that we can build more libraries so that we can fund these programs. So would, would that be in addition to the existing ones or just uh That would be in addition to the existing ones, yeah. Okay. And does uh, any kind of um, equity component come across uh, your mind? Because I know there's um, some stuff in Oakland as far as um, equity within uh, the cannabis industry and essentially looking to try to redirect at least some of the uh, potential new licensees uh, towards communities that have historically been impacted by the drug war in the first place. So I don't know if that's, you know, Anything you kind of thought thought about? Yeah, I actually love that you brought that up. That was uh, that was a big motive of why I wanted to advocate um, to do that is because I know that there is there is a tax on cigarettes that has massively funded early childhood initiatives all across the state of California. I know that first five O C a lot of their youth programs are funded through that tax um, revenue and. If we regulate this industry and we do it responsibly and we make sure that we are doing good things for the community and that we're advocating for people that have been impacted by the drug industry, I know that we can change the narrative of, of young people living in this community. There have been thousands of young people that have went to prison for, for cannabis and they're serving lengthy sentences and it's unjust because we've had a lot of dispensaries that have opened up that are that are operated by people that you know are able to utilize this as a as a business uh, model and they didn't face a lot of the repercussions that people had so the way that i'd prioritize that is i would want to prioritize more local business owners to open up legal cannabis dispensaries and um and i push for them to be unionized as well so that they can have livable wages and at the end of the day, I think in the next 10 to 20 years, this will be a tr um, this will be an industry that people respect. And it's an industry that helps a lot of people out. My mom had uh, had a tumor, a cancerous tumor, and medicinal marijuana helped her. And she's now 
been free of that for close to five years now. Um, yeah, so that was okay. I was not expecting the, the full-throated advocacy and, um, um, how do I say this, clarity uh, to which you were supportive of that. So I appreciate that. <laughs> Sometimes with, with public policy, you want to dance around an issue rather than just tackle it head on, which is – so that was kind of nice and, and refreshing there. Um, I think we'll need leaders that are going to tackle it head on. I, I'm, I'm tired of seeing people dance around these issues because they we, we half-heartedly vote for them and then we have this elected that we don't even recognize. So what people see is what they get. All right. So like as far as, you know, um, what's going on, I guess, more in the development side of things, right? Because you, you did mention you wanted some kind of responsible or some form of uh, development that's like benef- benefiting local residents. But how do you kind of um, balance the needs for new housing with the desire not to add additional uh, strain on local services? Like how, how's that balance looking like to you? Yeah, that's one area where I'm more concerned for my neighbors than any other area. And the reason why is, as you know, Manny, Ward 5 is, is a different ward. It's one of the, it's a historical ward with a lot of landmarks, multi-generational homeowners and families that have been rooted here since 1920s and forward. I was walking my neighborhood yesterday and came across a homeowner that's family purchased this home in Artis Pilar in 1910. And so that goes to show you the multi-generational homeowners that we have here. And they don't want to see development in their backyard. And they're not supportive of it. But I know that there's a need for affordable housing. I know that firsthand because I became a parent at a young age. And it has only progressively gotten more difficult to live in this, this city of Santa Ana. So when it comes to development, I'm not willing to compromise in having 60% of our units be affordable. I am going to advocate 100% for affordable housing units um, because I understand the need of my neighbors here. And when it comes to public spaces, I'm going to be attentive of the surrounding areas, of the businesses, of the potential impacts that it has on homeowners and potential displacement. But I'm also gonna look to advocate that we utilize public parcels for affordable housing development. And and I think that that is one way that we can be proactive when it comes to the issue of people experiencing homelessness is we should develop affordable housing because there's there's a growing body of research that shows us people that are being impacted by homelessness are 13 to 24 and they're LGBTQ youth. So I think affordable housing is also a preventative approach to the issue of homelessness. It's certainly um, a public policy um, matter that is intersectional. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, during my particular run uh, last, oh man, yeah, last year now, oh God, a year ago, um, (laughs) the... Yeah, well, one of the things that we kind of found was that the, there's no LGBTQ uh, shelter or any kind of you know service uh, provided for that particular group. And I think that, um, you know, when asked the question if I would support any more shelters, I said, you know, that was essentially the one exception was I, I do believe the county needs to provide or there needs to be somewhere in the county that provides that level of service uh, for that particular population. Um, and, you know, Santa Ana might be a good candidate for that type of 
of shelter service because no one else is providing it. And I think we've been a historically uh, welcoming community for the LGBTQ uh, uh, community. And yeah, we're just, I don't know. So I'm glad you brought that, that whole thing up. Um, as, as we're kind of looking at this you know, back on the topic of development, as we're looking at all this stuff that's happening, I'm not sure like kind of what your opinions are on the general plan update as it's currently written, because it is sort of impacting that area um, a little bit south and then kind of like where, where you're where you're at in Ward 5. You know, I think it's like the bottom southeastern uh, corner mm-hmm. or and actually maybe even right through the middle of it then with Santa Ana Boulevard. Yeah. Um, and we have uh, Tiny Tim as well. Okay. Yeah. So I don't know if you have any um, observations, opinions, kind of what you're you're seeing so far, kind of coming out of that general plan update. Yeah. Um, well, I can speak from the perspective of what I've gathered, and I've been walking Ward Five since I want to say May, May or June. We've walked it four times as of this Sunday. And, and we project we'll finish it a fifth time before November 3rd. Um, but we conducted surveys as well with residents on, on their perception of housing and how they feel about it. And I want to share the results that I learned from our survey. And that was residents felt it, it was going to impact their parking negatively. And, and so how do we advocate for them at that point, right? Like, let's say with the Tiny Tim um, development that we had, which is affordable housing. I, I don't think that that particular area, it, it is, it is a prime area for development. It's, it, it has essentially no high rise apartments there. I mean, it's a very narrow street. Um, there's a lot of cul-de-sacs in that community and there's a lot of old businesses, most notably Sarinanas, which has been there since 1939. So, the concern is that parking is where are people going to park and we're going to have a lot of cars that are parking in front of people's homes and they're not happy about that. So out of the 4,000 plus people that we've physically been able to talk to, um, we came up with the solution that the best way to handle that concern would be to have a parking permit program for residents in that neighborhood where we allot um, permits to them and visitor permits for residents that are going to live by development so that way we can we can be proactive in, in making sure that residents are happy and then we're meeting the, the needs of everybody um so that's one area that was like the number one concern that we had ironically um another thing too was the the streetcar when it came to d- development the reason why i tie in the streetcar is because th- there is a a, a very large amount of data that will show you that the most effective driving force of displacement and economic segregation is public transportation. And we have a streetcar that I presume not many of our own residents will utilize because we have a working class community, a very densely populated community. And if I'm looking at downtown Santa Ana and the demographic of, of, consumers there. They're not our working class families that live in my neighborhoods. There are a lot of people from from the outskirts of our city. So I presume that that could negatively impact the livelihood of my neighbors. So I'm going to be very, very attentive to to this project, Um, specifically because we just repaired Rate Street. 
And within the next couple of months, we'll have to tear Rate Street apart again to build the streetcar. And then we'll have to repair Rate Street again. So that is that is a mismanagement of our taxpayer dollars because we just paid X amount of millions to repair Rate Street with asphalt, not concrete. Asphalt, you have to repair every 22 years rather than every 70 years. So that's not very cost effective. It's very cheap. But not only did we pay that money, but then the next couple of months, we're going to have to tear that street apart and put the streetcar in. So a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of people are rightfully not happy about what's happening in uh, as far as uh, development. Yeah, no, I, I can totally see that, and I think it goes to the process improvement. Um, you know, so one of the one of the objectives I think of the initial Measure X sales tax is basically to invest in um, software programs that would help manage kind of these long term capital costs. So you would actually look at something in public works and say, "Hey, we know that this project is coming up, and we know that this project is coming up." what's the best way to kind of have them both happen at the same time so that we can save money. Um, I'm not sure if any of those programs ever got purchased because as you probably you know, fully aware, right, is a lot of that money got funneled off into uh, raises rather than in investments. And unfortunate. Yeah, it was totally unfortunate because I, I think the, you know, the, the people of the, the city are reasonably upset. Um, and yeah, that is one of the examples where it's just you know different management styles, right? Like as to whether or not you know the money that we're spending, are we kind of wasting it, and we're going to have to repair the stuff anyway? So I remembered a similar story. Um, I want to say it was down on South St. Gertrude, um, and it was basically totally repaved the you know the asphalt of the the neighborhood and it looked great. And then you know a couple of uh, months later, then uh, we had new pipes that had to go in, so then everything just got tore up, you know, once again. That's, that's heartbreaking. Yeah, so it's not a singular case, and I think that's what's most upsetting. It's like, okay, guys, let's let's learn from these patterns. What's going on? Is it that we're not communicating in between divisions? Like, yeah, so those uh, structural uh, bureaucratic issues, right? And I, I think that folks don't like uh, diving into the bureaucracy, but sometimes that's really where a, a lot of this ends up happening. Um, Good point. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, with that, okay, so there's definitely going to be development in the area, right? And especially with state density bonus laws, basically whatever is already on the books from the state of California, it's going to be considered a transit code. Um, not sure if your um, campaign has kind of done any sort of educational outreach with the like property owners that are there, because essentially they're sitting on property that's going to be worth twice to, you know, twice as much at least as to kind of what they, what they um, have now. Um, unless they sell early. So, like, you know, if someone comes up to them basically saying and offering them an extra, like, $100,000 for their home, it's probably worth, you know, twice that much because it's going to have this ability to, ha to have additional units on it. So, again, I don't know if, you know, uh, that's been part of the education because, you know, or if people are even aware of that kind of happening in the background uh, through that survey. Because I'm, I'm really curious to see kind of what uh, the survey results were, like, you know, specifically. Yeah, absolutely. I can I can share that with you for sure. Um, yeah, I know that for for my case as a homeowner, um, I am well aware that that our property value is going to increase significantly. Um, it's so crazy because my grandfather bought this home in the late fifties, and he purchased it for thirteen thousand dollars. And I mean, it's it, it's crazy how the sacrifice of, of somebody who had just migrated here from San Juan de los Lagos, Jalisco, you know, here are five generations later and 
and fighting to make this community better. I think that's that that's something that is going to resonate with a lot of neighbors here because a lot of folks, they don't want to sell their homes in this community. And, um, and yeah, so that's something interesting. And I would definitely love to see how people respond to that, that, that information you just shared. Yeah. Cause there are things that, um, that can happen in some historic districts. Like it's, it's really more common in like the city of New York or somewhere that's like an urban core, but you can do like a, something called like a transfer of development rights. So a person mm-hmm. that maybe doesn't want to sell their home or doesn't want to like, um, like build anything on it, but does want to maybe transfer that development right to someone else. You can basically mm-hmm. say, look, you're not gonna be able to build anything else on this property, but that development can then go to an adjacent property in the area so that the actual like homeowners are able to capitalize on this additional zoning without selling or being displaced, um, while at the same time adding like the units that we basically zoned for. Uh, it gets a little crazy because then you end up with slightly taller units, but you end up with less of them, right? So then that's like the other kind of like balancing act there. Um, and I, we haven't talked about it, I think, yet, but I think it might be something down down the, the pipeline to, to look at there. Um, yeah, I'd like to have an in-depth uh, conversation with you about that. That's, that's interesting for sure. Yeah, yeah, we got to you know, look at it uh, different ways, right? Because it's, uh, it's once once in a generation, literally, I think once every 30 years to take a look at this general plan and really comprehensively update it. And uh, I think that's why um, I, I was expecting it maybe to be done before the new electeds got in. But it looks like it's going to be whoever uh, gets elected will be voting on the general plan in its final version. So, uh, you know, this is not a topic that's going away. Um, you know, but I did want to, you know, circle back and, you know, I guess give you the opportunity uh, to ask you kind of what um, if what credence uh, to give to any online allegations kind of coming out there because I, I could already expect uh, what's uh, coming down the pipeline here. Um, so I just wanted to be able to say that we we asked you the question as to you know what are you know, the allegations of um, I would say inappropriate behavior is that probably the best way to to categorize the, the broad sweep of what the online accusations are and uh, what your response is to them. Yeah. Well, for one, I, I want to start by just saying I stand with all victims that have experienced um, abuse, that have experienced harassment, cyberbullying, um, especially within their workplace or their organizing community. But the reality is um, I have a very different background than most people in organizing. And it's evident in working in a lot of these spaces um, I've, I've seen it firsthand where, where people that come from a background that is different than, than the consensus of people that are in these spaces are, are treated very differently. There is a prominent black community in this city of Santa Ana, but yet we've seen zero alliance with this community. And I started organizing at a very young age. I was about 14 years of age when I organized with my first space. And throughout those times, Having known my story, a lot of people loved to share that story. A lot of people loved for me to to be involved in their space until I came into my own as an adult. And I formulated my own pathway for organizing and bringing solutions to people with backgrounds like mine. A lot of the times, the, the youth that have been justice impacted, gang involved, um, people that come from multi-generational gang homes, they don't have an existence in spaces like this. The culture of, of activism is not embraced. People that are different than, than what 
you're used to. And we talk about the movements and the values of being progressive. Black Lives Matter, love is love. But at the same time, we are so quick to throw people away, cancel them. And we in turn have adopted our own systems of oppression that very much look just as in common with the issue of mass incarceration, a, a system that I've been fighting for a very long time. And um, when I started organizing, I organized within a lot of these spaces. And I, I felt like a lot of people just simply wanted me to drink their Kool-Aid and do things as I was told. And if I didn't like something or a way that it was going, you got to stay hush. Well, that's not why I do this. I don't do this to uphold the status quo. No one is going to tell me what is best for the experiences that I've lived through. But, but me and people like myself. And so with that being said, this was clear as day a smear campaign, a opportunity to tear down an individual that has been bringing people together for years without that establishment's support. Proudly. I don't need special interest money. I've never needed a cult's support to do good by my community. And I will stay true to that. I don't believe in bullying people. I don't believe in cyberbullying. I believe that social media is a tool that should be used for good. You won't see me using my platform to tear people down. And I have every reason to tear these people down that have slandered me. I've experienced sexual harassment firsthand from the individuals that have launched an online onslaught against me. Their supporters are evidence they, that they've, they've seen me experience these things firsthand. Many of them know my, my experience, but I've been graceful because I know that hurt people hurt people. And I just, I'm practicing love, not only with myself, but even with my adversaries, because at the end of the day, you learn more about a person's character, not when they're shining, and not when things are going well, but when their back is up against the wall. That is where you learn what, where somebody's heart really is. And the mission has stayed the same, whether I'm being thrown through the dirt or whether I'm helping grow roses from concrete, the mission stays the same, disrupt hopelessness at every opportunity. And um, I can assure you that justice will be, will be brought. And I will be... Uh, I'll be issuing something very public very soon that I'm sure will shock a lot of people. And oh. if I'm, I'll leave it at that. Oh, wow, I, th I think that was um, that begs a, a follow up. Um, I have no idea what you're talking about. I'm I'm intrigued. Um, I'm sure if any of the audience is listening before this release, or before the release, they're, they're intrigued as well. Um, so you know, and and I guess this is like a situation. Yeah, again, for me, is um, it is it, you know trying to observe and like navigate this um you know for a lot of casual observers i think um either would not want to be you know dragged into like whatever is going on or like try to avoid the topic completely um 
You can ask the hard hitting questions. I, I can try, but it's it's difficult, man. Because here, here's the thing, right? It's like, yeah, you know, for me, at the end of the day, I've, I'm so, um, I I do really want to try to do what's best for for the city and the community. And sometimes I, I think that there's a lot of gray. That there's not always like a hundred percent, you know, the right thing to do. Like some things are very obvious. Other things are much more uh, difficult. You know what? You know what's obvious to me when an organization releases a letter for being anti-black and nobody shares that and nobody think that that should be a conversation and when we talk about defunding racist institutions like police departments but we don't talk about defunding that that's obvious to me and i don't stay silent about these things because that's not my job just like going into office my job isn't to say look how wonderful he is and get a pat on the back I'm coming in here to do work and I'm coming in here to represent people. And the last person I'm concerned about is myself. So happily throw the dirt on me, all the dirt that you like. Like Maya Angelou said, I got a, I got a bag full of that that my ancestors went through. So if that's all you have, let me remind you who we are. Our people have endured lynchings, slavery, violence, mass incarceration. I come from Artisia Pilar neighborhood. It's gonna take a lot more than dirt to hurt this guy here. And, and this is a reminder that we have to stand, we have to stand tall. Ironic coming from a guy that's five foot seven. We have to, <laughs> we have to stand tall in the face of adversity. And in the words, of Michelle when they go low we go high and this I want this to be a testament to residents because you know who else is no you know who else has experienced things like this people that live in my community children that live in my community that are living in gang injunctions they're experiencing what I'm experiencing at a much larger level it's systemic it's systematic before they leave their household, they have more opportunities to get arrested than to safely make it to class on time. So the level of intensity and, and clarity that I'm operating with since I've been doing work in this community as a young boy has been to remember that, that there are systems in place that are doing that for us. They got drones and they got helicopters that are doing that already for us. All right, so I, I can have your uh, your assurance that we'll be stopping the sheriff's uh, routine patrol of Central Santa Ana. That thing keeps me up at night. I'm like, God, why? You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's constant. Yeah. All right. Thank you for asking the, the those hard hitting questions. They're important. No, yeah, no, it has to be asked, and I, I think that like you know, that's kind of the the challenge with um with with public life, right? It's like you have to address issues that come up that. Um, you know, people are going to completely disagree about, and I can already, you know, I foresee that already happening. So that's, it's, it's all good. Um, but you know, the, the thing then becomes like, okay, are we able to have a discussion about this or is it going to just going to be, um, one sided? So I hope that we can at least have a discussion about whatever the, the issue ends up uh, becoming. Um, and that, you know, you're able to have your side of the story and that the, the other individuals are able to, to also you know, share their sides as well. So, you know, all this, 
has it really even has it been a distraction from the campaign or has it just been like what is this really like like been like what does this campaign life cycle look like to you i got a rose from concrete on my arm yeah remember it's all audio so (laughs) nobody i have a rose from concrete on my arm to remind me that there are people in life that will be quick to critique you for the lived experiences that you have. And there are also people in life that will marvel, that will marvel at the tenacity you had to push through that. So I remind myself on those days that are difficult, that I'm not alone, that there are people that feel this way today. There might be children that are in a, in a distance learning classroom that feel like they're not learning anything. And my message to them is keep going. And so when you brought up the issue of like, was it a distraction? I was a senior getting ready to graduate when I found out I was going to become a father. And I have thrived every single day since then. And I don't have a lot of opportunities to thrive as a 17-year-old dad, but I've done that. And I not only have I had a good career where I've done good work in my community, but I've done good for my family, for my daughter. And I've done everything that I've wanted to do personally and professionally at my young age. I had a strong passion for mixed martial arts. I wanted to pursue a career in that. And I had a labor organizing background. And in 2015, I was a part of a group of athletes. I was the only one from Orange County that signed a a bill into Congress to extend the Muhammad Ali Act from the sport of boxing to the sport of mixed martial arts. And I did that amongst some of my favorite fighters in the world. And on paper, I'm a ghetto boy from Santa Ana that shouldn't have done any of these things. So I'm sharing all of this with you because I have endured too much for me to be distracted by that. I have a whole life lifetime worth of experiences that are much that are that are that are very grave i knew exactly what i was experiencing and i uh i'm compassionate to um to people that have experienced these these very issues and we need to advocate for justice we need to believe survivors and we need to make sure that justice is sought and throughout all of this, I have actively sought justice and I have sought trans- transparency. And, um, and I'm going to continue to seek that. And I can assure you that the result of that is going to be very, very shocking. Well, I can uh, say that, um, you know, kind of when you were recounting your own story, I guess that trauma recognizes trauma. So, how do you like work through it? Like what is, yeah, there, there are definitely a lot of things in, in your life. I'm sure that kind of like kept you, kept you going. Um, obviously the, your, your daughter, but you know, what else kind of kept everything from clicking and not spiraling? You know, one of the most traumatic days I ever had was when I was 17 and my daughter was born. I remember being there and crying And I remember I didn't have a dad. I don't have a dad on my birth certificate. So 
I never knew what that felt like. I never really saw fatherhood and I never really saw or felt it, which is a blessing because I got to become myself. And I remember the joy of fatherhood. And then I remember my, my mother-in-law at that time saying, you're too young to be a father. You can't stay here. And me having to leave. And I remember walking home and crying. And what made it much worse, it was about like 1130 at night. And I remember walking down First Street, going home, and I got approached by a car full of um, homies. And they had a gun. And they were like, where are you from? And, you know, I'm not from nowhere. So I was just, I remember I ran across the street. I hid in some bushes. And they turned their car around. And I just was praying for life. And I was like, my, I just saw my daughter today, like, I'm walking home and I'm going to get shot and get killed. And that's going to be my story. And my child's going to grow up without her dad. And I remember it was just really devastating. And like, it makes me emotional to think about it now. But I came back two to three months later and I had keys to my first apartment as a 17 year old. And that was working and going to school. And and I housed my family and we've been housed ever since. And I've been providing for my daughter ever since. And I've only gotten better at being the best dad I can be. As a matter of fact, I'm running for office because of fatherhood. So it took me back to that where people are saying, you can't do this. You're not good enough. You're nothing. Remind, we need to remind you you're nothing. I need to remind you you're wrong. And so I, I've just constant reflection is, is helpful. I think when somebody needs to go so far out of their way to tear down your character and to convince the world that you aren't good is a testament of how much you're really doing. And so I remind myself of the powerful events that we've been able to do in this community and bringing iconic leaders back to this community like Daniel Michael Lynham. He's my mentor. Daniel Michael Lynham was the founder of the Black Panther chapter here in Santa Ana. And when Officer Nelson Sasser was shot and killed, Daniel Michael Lynham was arrested and charged for that murder although he had nothing to do with it. He was released 30 days after his arrest and acquitted of all charges. But if you Google his name, the first thing that will come up is cop killer. So my level of compassion for people and for myself, I'm reminded of, of that through the excellent leaders that, that I look to and that I have the honor of working with. And this year, we had a Juneteenth event that I'm really uh, proud of, and uh, Daniel Michael Lynham was involved in it, and, um, and that is a testament that we are not defined by, uh, by our adversity. What defines us is how we respond to it. So in response to doing good things in this community, it's only intensified the level of service that I want to have for neighbors that 
have experienced these types of things. And it's why I, I have such a proactive and progressive and responsive mental health um, platform. A lot of the work and a lot of the policies that I'm looking to introduce are not only going to improve the quality of life for us, but they're going to address the root causes of inequality. And when you do that, you affect the cause of crime. And uh, that's that's how I've navigated that. Well, well thanks for that, man. I, that was, I'm sure, uh, emotional to, to share, as emotional to, to listen to. I think that the experiences that you had, and like you said, just being the... You know, that being your story, and quite literally in many ways for a lot of people in our community, you know, that being their story in the register, that being their story on the you know, daily news where it's just like young kid shot, and then that's the one line, when each of those lives were much more complicated than that. So appreciate um, you, know, you, you telling that, uh, that story. The you know, thing I want to um, kind of uh, pivot to, if, if we can, is actually what we, you kind of mentioned was were some of the campaigns and the events that you had brought in. So uh, for those that don't know, could you give, give like a rundown of some of the work that you had been involved with um, you know, over the, the past couple of years? Yeah. So I started off uh, my career um, working in environmental organizing in 2010 and was a part of a number of different campaigns uh, surrounding um, the quality of, of air that we have. Uh, did a lot of organizing in San Francisco um, so that it can become a sustainable city uh, that utilized wind farms. And um, I was deeply involved in that. I got into environmentalism through my teenage years in, in punk rock music. It got me deeply into veganism. It got me into uh, feminism. It got me into um, protecting the environment. Um, in addition to that, um, I had an extensive um organizing role in in assistance with uh with a lot of the issues around displacement in mexico when it came to our forests and deforestation things around that and i was just a kid at that time that that was very passionate about environmental organizing and i didn't understand the intersectionality of how that affects us here in urban cities like santa ana so I, my first big campaign that I ever had a lead role in was No on Proposition 32 in 2012. And I was one of the lead organizers that helped secure votes and helped mobilize thousands of union members to walk so that we can have people vote No on Prop 32. Prop 32 is one of the most, um, it was one of the most trickiest propositions that we had seen cleverly worded funded by the Koch brothers and what it would do was it would allow corporations to unlimitedly fund political campaigns and act as people and on the ballot it looked very appealing until you looked at who funded it and you saw that it was actually an anti-union initiative to take um to take uh, workers rights away and allow unlimited spending political spending so that was one of my biggest campaigns that I worked on. And thankfully, we got a no on Prop 32 vote. Uh, shortly after that, I got involved in the uh, extension of the Muhammad Ali Act from the sport of boxing to the sport of mixed martial arts. 
And in 2015, we were able to, to work with um, represent, Representative Joe Kennedy uh, to get that bill introduced to Congress and Mark Wayne Mullen out of Oklahoma. Uh, so this was a, a bipartisan bill. And um, that was some of the most complicated and calculated work I'd ever done because we're talking about a sport in mixed martial arts that is a multi-billion dollar industry where fighters are getting maybe 5% of the revenue generated where you have world champion athletes that are making $200,000 and they're fighting on pay-per-view and that pay-per-view earns a million pay-per-view buys and that pay-per-view costs $60 per buy. And that company just keeps entirely all that revenue. So, you know, to work with conservatives um, in Congress and work with Democrats in Congress, you, you had to have two different approaches on how you were, how you were approaching the Ali Act extension. And, and that prepared me a lot for, for, uh, you know, public policy. Um, for, in addition to that, I got deeply involved in restorative justice in 2012 for Santa Ana Unified School District. Uh, a lot of people don't know, but when I was a kid, um, I experienced uh, gang violence walking home from school one day where I was, where I was jumped, walking from Spurgeon Intermediate. Uh, my head was cut open. Um, I, was, I was beat up and I, I feel like I was left to die that day. And a local business, Arinana's Tamale Factory, uh, took me in and, and protected me. And I remember going home and feeling scared to go back to school. And ironically, when I went back to school, I was suspended. And I was the victim in, in this case. And so when I finished high school, I went back to Santa Ana Unified and I started advocating for restorative justice, the implementation of it. And I was involved from 2012 upward until they introduced it and started massively funding it. And um, I started advocating for young people. I was about 18 years old at that time. And I shared my story of what I experienced and how I was suspended from school and nobody was willing to listen to what type of household I came from, what happened when I was walking home from school, how was I going to be reintegrated into the classroom, how were they unattentive to my trauma that I experienced and endured. And so I was a voice for a lot of students and, and thankfully we were able to get that introduced. And uh, in addition to that, I had organizing efforts all across the state of California around um, the juvenile justice reform, um, supporting Prop 47, Prop 57, and uh, a lot of work around education reform and, and the introduction of music, arts, and narrative therapy in our schools. So in 2015, I was a, I was a, a youth that used to go to a boxing club. There was a, a boxing club that closed down and I temporarily helped youth um, train by securing a location for them so that they can box. And we did that for about two years. And then within that same year, we started an initiative uh, called Roses in the Concrete. Uh, we found great influence in the poetry of Tupac Shakur and we utilized hip hop education and advocacy as a social change model to advocate for better public policy to identify different resources that are alternatives to policing in juvenile hall, jail, and prison. And we would host a conference and a concert that included 12 different universities and colleges across the state of California 
that have programs or justice impacted students. We had the luxury of, of, we had the honor of partnering with colleges like Cal State Fullerton, um, Irvine Valley College, Santa Ana College, um, UCSD. Um, we had the privilege of partnering with Project Kinship, um, a bunch of different reentry programs, reentry services, job development programs, um, expungement programs. And we would host a conference where in the beginning half, it was all about education, lectures. We had people like KRS-One provide lectures. And then we'd have a concert at the end of it. Um, our last one was KRS-One, Aloe Black, Reverie, Ruby Ibarra, Blimes Brixton, Gifted Gab, um, Apollo Bebop. And we had a really cool one planned for 2020. Um, and that, we that, were, that all went away. <laughs> I know. We were going to have Talib Kweli and Slum Village. So we were looking to have a pretty cool lineup. All right. And okay, well, that was that was a lot to go through, man. I'm sorry. That was uh, okay. I was trying to keep track of all of them, but the standout item uh, that is leading to this next question is actually, you know, what is the relationship then do, that you see uh, between the school district and the city? Right. So two different agencies, um, sometimes at loggerheads and competing mission sets. So, like, how does that work for you, or what? Do you, what are you envisioning there? Without a given, we need to work together. I mean. I don't see a reason why we should not have a stronger relationship with the school district. The school district's goal is to ensure that students have a strong path to self-actualization through education. And, and our city, having come from a city that was our motto was education first, I don't understand why we don't have a stronger relationship. That's actually one of the more pressing items on my on my agenda is formulating an agreement so that we can have a joint use agreement where we utilize our facilities. Um, I think that that absolutely needs to happen without question. All right. So are, are there any other uh, public policy areas that you'd like to like highlight or talk about in a little bit more detail before we get into our closing remarks? I know um, we're, we're getting late on a school night or is it still still good now? <laughs> We're okay right now. All right. Yeah, yeah. I, I want to have a lot more community relations, and I want a lot more civic participation from our residents. And the reason why I think it's so important is because we have not created a, sustain, a sustainable program which effectively creates ongoing leadership. The same way that we have parenting programs, the same way that we have sports programs, I would want to advocate to have a civic engagement program year round that teaches young people and families how to advocate for themselves, how to advocate for public policy, um, what are the purpose of commissions, um, maybe some additional commissions that we should have. And I want to have a program that is very closely modeled to the St. Joseph Health program that we had a couple years back at Delhi that was called the CBI, Community Building Initiative, where we had a community health worker at, and the proposal would be to have a community health worker at each of our major community centers that works on behalf of residents and advocates for, um, for solutions within their respective communities. So I know, for instance, in Santa Anita, I know residents want to renovate the Santanita Community Center. I know that Santanita residents want to have more speed bumps 
in their community. I know that Santanita wants to have more senior programs. So I believe if we had a community health worker that can work as a liaison with the people, youth, and, and schools, I think that that would be a great way for us to get more engagement. Um, as a city council member, I would look to, to have office hours and try to rotate within different locations so that we can be more accessible to residents all over the city, and specifically in Ward 5. But I think that's some, an initiative I'd be excited to announce is that I want to have um, stronger community health emphasis in the city of Santa Ana. Yeah, no, I think I, I always wanted there, like the idea of just having a public office desk somewhere, like randomly in public. And I think for Ward 5, it's a little easier. You just like go to the tables in front of Satiana's and just like sit I there. Love it. Just I sit like there. That. <laughs> You'd be like, all right, you get the first tamale free and then you have to buy the rest or something. You know, just pay for your. your and everybody. since you said that, I have to do it, man. This is a shameless, <laughs> shameless plug. Shout out to Sarinana's Tamale Factory. Um, not only did they endorse me, my dad used to take me there when I was a little boy. And um, and anybody who knows Ward 5 knows that they see me at Sarinana's all the time. So shout out to them. Uh, good stuff, man. Good stuff. It's, they're pretty, pretty tasty. Yeah, no. Well, if I can get you to do something else, then that'd be... Um, man, I've been wanting this. I've been wanting the new... Um, basically, all the new electeds, you know, whoever's going to be up there for uh, for twenty twenty now. If you guys can all just like plant a tree together, that'll be like gigantic, like one day. So you guys are all like symbolically planting, you know, the seeds and the small trees that'll end up growing up over time with a tiny little plaque. Just you know, twenty twenty, everyone gets memorialized. So you'll live on forever in that tree until it you know falls down or something. Dude, but. I think you need to become like an interior designer, man. You have like a beautiful mind for that. I, I am an urban designer. You know, that's the thing I designed. That, 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 that's uh, the subspecialty is actually urban design. So it was um, that's what I look at on YouTube as much as I can. <laughs> that is outstanding. I love that idea. Very artistic, man. Very nice. Yeah, yeah you know, I mean, it's a great idea. I second it. I second it for sure. There we go. We just need uh, six more people. Well, you need to get elected first and then yeah. six more people. <laughs> <laughs> Um, no, yeah. So this is like crazy, right? It's like okay, major election season, twenty three days to go. Um, you know, part of it is like how much is it anxiety at the national level versus what's going on locally versus, um, you know, like a lot of people that run, you're going to be part of this community regardless of what the results are on the the twenty third. So like, have you given thought to like what your non city life is looking like? Like, what is it that you hope to continue to do in the city? Yeah. I have a saying that I've been pretty public about. This campaign isn't about, it's not about, it's not about winning or losing. And it's not about doing good things for the sake of campaigning. It, it, it is about disrupting hopelessness at every opportunity. Win or lose, the mission stays the same. Do good by the people and make sure that I am doing everything I can to improve the quality of life for my neighbors. I don't need this position to do that, but I would be honored to represent my neighbors and to do that at a much larger scale. I know that of all the candidates, not only do I have the lived experience, not only do I have the professional experience, and not only do I have the community track record of consistently, not only advocating and being a voice against injustice, but I have brought solutions and I've done that without the establishment of activists or the establishment of businesses or politicians. I've done that 
directly with people that are experiencing these struggles. And I will continue to do that. But as your city councilman, I'll be able to bring all of those people with me. And I think collectively, we have the strongest ability to create change is our campaign. Because we've already, in a very small way, have done that. We've already planted seeds for black and brown solidarity. We've already planted seeds for youth power. If, I, if elected, I would be the youngest male elected official in Santa Ana history. In addition to that, you know, this would be a testament of people that have experienced adversity in their lifetimes that you don't have to be defined by it. Whether you've been through the juvenile justice system, the prison system, whether you dropped out of college to work and support your family or help your parents, you can do it. Time is on your side. You can, you can be bold and set out your dreams that you have, and you can do those things that you want to do. I'm a testament of that. I am by no means perfect, but I am an absolutely worth it. And, and that, that's something I want to remind people of is that they're worth it. Um, don't give up on yourself. And I think that that's what this campaign has really helped people with is when I've walked these neighborhoods, I'll share like most recently on Friday, I, I encountered a household of like some real, real homies. Like these dudes were like with that lifestyle. And they were like, man, you're crazy. And, I, and they're like, what are you doing, bro? You just straight up walked up to us right now. And I'm like, yeah, man, I want to I want to get you guys engaged. And he's like, for what? And I'm like, well, because no one wanted to walk up to me when I was a kid. No one wanted to, they'd always walk past my house. So I'm letting you know I'm walking up to y'all because I want to know how I can advocate for you. And they're like, you're crazy. You're getting our vote. <laughs> they're like, people don't come over here to this neighborhood. And I said, that's why I'm here. And they're like, we're not registered to vote. We're felons. And I was like, well, let me look at this and see if you're eligible to register to vote now. And all eight of them were eligible to vote because they had been long out of parole. They had already served their time and they registered to vote and they got my phone number and they texted me a group shot of them filling out their <laughs> ballots. So I'm like, but if you see these folks, you wouldn't think that they have that type of joy inside them but they do we just have to we have to help them be visible and that's what i feel uh, our campaign has done is it's provided a face and a voice to a lot of people that have felt pushed out and if we have the honor of serving this community we will be a voice for everybody all right well thanks for that jonathan um I think uh, I am pretty good on questions. I think we, we might have hit the hour or hour and a half mark. I, I actually don't know. But do you have the timer over there? Hour and ten. Hour and ten. Okay, yeah. So, And I'm still going to add the intro, outro, and, and everything else. I, I, I've been finding that the longer the, the podcasts go, the less people listen. Um, which is fine for me because I actually prefer the long form anyway. So I'm really making these for myself so I can look back and be like, yeah, that was a good conversation with a good, good interesting person. Um, I'm sorry. I should have kept it short. <laughs> no, no, no. It's it's all good, man. It's all good. Um, yeah, appreciate you uh, you being on here. Um, I'm trying to think of any kind of last minute questions if I if I have them. 
Um, ah, yeah, there was that one thing I was going to ask. Was, um, you had mentioned uh, working with the black community here. I don't know if you can give any shout outs uh, to uh, some folks over in the, in the black community that are doing some work around here. I, I know that uh, there, there are several. So if you uh, just want to go ahead and. Yeah, yeah. I want to give a shout out to um, Pastor Daniel Michael Lynham, who grew up in Artisa Pilad off of 7th Street and Rate. As a resident that lives off of Civic Center and Rate, um, I take great pride in the excellence of, of my neighbors here. And I want to give a shout out to the businesses and congregations that have been in this community since the early 1950s. Uh, Burrell's, the, the Black congregations and churches that we have here, uh, the Prince Hall Masonic Lodge, and to my brothers and sisters in Black OC, um, an organization that has been a voice for justice-impacted Black and, and brown people, um, but somebody that is actively creating a, uh, a a safe haven for black people. And they're going to look to establish a community center here in the city of Santa Ana. Hopefully over the next couple of years, they'll have a, a community center and a, within that community center, they'll have a, a black museum of, of all the local black history here. Oh, that'd be cool. I should, uh, well, I guess we can, we'd what, connect them up over with the hall and then the hall could be used for that. And then there's like a space next to the hall that can be built out. Yeah. And uh, I'm like, cause it's like, it's just an empty lot next to it, I think. And I'm like, all right, that'd be pretty cool. <laughs> you should, you should connect with, um, Black OC and interview. They would, they actually have a lot of respect for you. Um, I spoke to them one time and they're like, um, Full Metal Archivist. Do you know him? I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's my friend. And they were like, dude, this guy's awesome. We saw that he had, um, a lecture on black history in Santa Ana and they were like, yeah, dude, he's awesome. So, Oh yeah, no, but that was, that was, uh, that was all Kevin's work. So I just provided the forum over at Maca the Macara center for the arts, but, uh, Kevin Cabrera has been doing some really great historical research and has been, uh, uh you know, very supportive of the uh, Orange County or the Santa Ana uh, black historical society, which I am ashamed to say, to say that I have not been as uh, involved with. So that's yeah, all awesome. yeah. yeah. Shout out to Kevin. Thank you for your, uh, for your contributions to, to this community and you are greatly valued. Yeah. But now he's valued in like Maryland. So, Oh, he moved. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he moved. He, he got a really uh, great, no, it's all good. He got a really great position over at a museum um, just outside of DC. So now he's going to be working on um, some national efforts for the, um, what is it? Uh, the, I'm not sure exactly what it's going to be termed, but it's like the Latino American, like or Hispanic American museum. That's going to be the next one proposed for the national mall. Uh, so since he's in the area, he's going to be like yeah, trying to get heavily involved with that project. So it'll, it'll be good. We'll have West coast representation in the Latino narrative. There we go. Well, as evidenced, man, we enjoyed talking to each other, brother. So I, I'd say, I'm going to say thank you. Oh, man. Oh, thank you. Uh, and I hope you uh, have a good night. Um, and yeah, I think that's good. It's going to be it. We don't know what song we're going to go out on, but uh, per your suggestion, we're going to try to track down Edgar's old band's uh, song and then see if we can uh, post that up. <laughs> and also in, <laughs> awesome. in, in honor of your, your punk roots. Oh, let's do that. Okay. In honor of my punk roots. If we may end it on Blitz New Age. Blitz New Age. Blitz is from the UK. Okay, well, we'll, we'll see. We've been trying to keep them local because I don't think we can get Blitz to say okay to, to use their song rights. That's the other thing. Uh, uh, yeah. See, so we need a local band. We'll, we'll talk about it later, though. But uh, <laughs> Over the Counter Intelligence, man. Have you ever heard of Over the Counter Intelligence? I, I did, yeah. So, okay, so 
We, we can probably track down one of their tracks. Viva los zapatistas, viva! Yeah, they're old school. <laughs> there was a song they had called uh, "Tonight He Takes His Last Breath." So dope. Well, anyway, brother, thank you so much. All right, Jonathan. Uh, take care, man. Take care, brother. Thanks uh, everyone for for coming in and uh, tuning in. So I want to, you know, just uh, say that um, you know as a person that grew up you know down the street on the other side of rage and uh, experienced you know, things that were you know, quite honestly I can say probably not as uh, dramatic as uh, some of the, the the experiences that were shared here today. That you know we're not necessarily alone in those experiences, and I think that it does um, you know do policymakers. Sir, uh, you know, good to, to try to understand uh, some of the outlooks and kind of the life events that shape the people that they're essentially trying to, to govern at the local level. So I think that you know, too often we, we forget that the policies that we have to imp- implement are also you know things that happen at different points in people's lives and that their you know, particular experiences do color the way that they, they see and, and interact with the world. And you know, to have more opportunities for people to not spiral out um, and then kind of spiral out of, uh, out of control and out of society, but rather, you know, face those particular demons, that particular kind of set of hurt and to try to become better people from that, I think is a pretty good lesson that we can, you know, hold down from you know, the, the life experience of life experience of Mr. Hernandez and uh, other folks like him in the community. So, you know, uh, appreciate you all for listening. Uh, Edgar, as always, thank you for the Smooth Silver slash Michael Scott Paper Company slash Iron Lion Media Studios for doing the production and for tracking down uh, what I believe is a punk band from Santa Ana called Doscos. Uh, we don't know what song we're going to use, but we know that Edgar knows the guy who knows the guy. And uh, with that, we should be going out to some punk tunes. Enjoy, everybody.